0: Okay. Okay, would you roll in uh, a two seven zero from the smoke?
1: A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct, nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things they have always
2: done. If the story seems moral, do not believe it. Page sixty-five. War. What image does that immediately bring into your mind? For many of us, the prevailing image might be one that we saw in a comfortable movie theater, far away from any real harm. As a society, we have come to romanticize and glorify war, especially in pop culture with figures such as Captain America. War, to us, is black and white, a simple tale of good versus evil. It has become nothing more than a story to pass the time, a glamorous adventure where the bullets never do anything more than graze the skin and our heroes never die. The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien explores the gray area in between that black and white illusion, forcing the reader to reckon with the areas of our common psyche that we would rather stay unexplored. In his novel The Things They Carried, O'Brien tells the stories of a platoon of soldiers during the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War lasted 20 years from November 1, 1955 to April 30, 1975. Though on the surface it was about American ships in Vietnam, it was a Cold War proxy conflict driven by the U.S.'s desire to stop the spread of communism. It was a conflict steeped in mystery, as the true causes and motivations were obscured from the public and those fighting.
1: Hi, and welcome to Gray Area with Miranda Boyd, Megan Amaro, and Rosie Safford. Through his scattered, multi-perspective storytelling, O'Brien explores the ambiguity of truth and morality, and the extent to which they are manipulated by war.
3: Chapter 1, Morality. In this section, we will discuss the extent to which morality is manipulated by war.
1: All right. So the first major point of discussion we're going to be talking about today um, is the idea of
2: adapting to the immorality of war, um, in this case, the Vietnam War. And so one of the really interesting topics that we see explored here is the idea of moral injury. And so moral injury, um, to quote the New York Times article for Veterans, a Path to Healing Moral Injury, um, Moral injury is defined as a result of being ordered to do something in a high-stakes situation that violates an individual's deeply held beliefs about what is right. And so we see that explored pretty deeply in the things they carried. Because war is sort of the ultimate high-stakes situation, because it is life and death for the soldiers in it, it becomes really an easy place to sustain a moral injury. And the Vietnam War especially was um, easy to sustain a moral injury because of the sort of complicated moral nature of the war. The causes were obscured. The uh, motivations were obscured. And there's a really um, great quote on page 78. O'Brien writes, the old rules are no longer binding. The old truth's no longer true. Right spills over into wrong. And what we have there is that soldiers, when removed from the context of the world they've lived in for so long, their daily lives, what's normal to them, and ordered to do like acts that we would see as heinous um, over here, when sent overseas and told to commit these acts, when it becomes their new normal, their sense of morality becomes twisted in that sense, where right spills over into wrong. The old truths are no longer true. And when the old truths are no longer true, when those principles that you have and that you've held for so long are no longer right, where you have to abandon them in order to survive, that's when that idea of moral injury becomes so easy and so prevalent. And also, the soldiers have moments of awareness when
1: of their twisted senses of morality um for example on page 194 azar says what's real eight months in fantasy land it tends to blur the line um so this is really just they don't they're not always aware of their loss of morality i think but when they have time which is not very often like free time to think um i think it is kind of overwhelming for them to to realize that what they're doing is not exactly accepted normally. So, yeah.
2: And um, in that way, we see a lot of the reflection on moral injury and morality can only happen when the soldiers are removed from that environment, that vacuum that they are in, in the war. Because when you're in the moment, you don't have too much time to think about whether it's morally right to kill when someone's shooting at you. But when they're at home... Um, They actually have time to think and process and feel guilt. And that's something that we can see in um, the chapter Speaking of Courage. And so in that chapter, we see um, Norman Bowker agonized um, once he is at home driving around far away from the war about his choices during the war. More specifically, um, that moment where he let go of Kiowa's shoe and let him sink into the mud, thus drowning. And that is one of those moments of moral injury where in, you know, in like real life, like far removed from war, if we think on that, that moment where, you know, do we let a friend drown or do we not? You would obviously say, don't let your friend drown. But in that sort of life and death situation where your number one priority becomes survival. It's much more difficult to discern and to make those choices. And we see Norman just sort of spend this whole time beating himself up for the choice that he made in the heat of the moment in war and how he has sustained that moral injury from the decision that he made. And that wasn't something that affected him so gravely at the time when he was in Vietnam, but now that he's at home and he's had time to process as he's driving circles around his little town, he really starts to notice and have, and he's forced to reckon with those feelings within him that he's done something wrong, that he has betrayed his own moral code by letting a friend die. And um, there's a quote where on page 147 it says, Norman Bowker remembered how he had taken hold of Kiowa's boot and pulled hard, but how the smell was simply too much, and how he would backed off and in that way lost the Silver Star. He reflects a lot on losing the Silver Star. And in this place, I consider the Silver Star to be a sort of symbol of his morality, or his heroism. And him losing the Silver Star, he didn't really have it in the first place, the award, essentially. But losing the silver star in this scenario is more of an example of him knowing he has messed up and him feeling that he's messed up, that he lost that moral high ground in his mind.
3: Another area that shows the loss of morality in war was seen in the Sweetheart of the Song Trabong section, and it focused on Mary, and she really symbolized the loss of morality soldiers experienced during the war. So when Marianne arrived at the outpost, she really just represented innocence and naivete for the soldiers and represented the soldiers entering battle. And she was really out of her element there. She didn't know what was happening. Um, granted, this outpost didn't see as much action as people out on the front lines, but it was still a place where there were soldiers um, who were seasoned and who knew what the war was like. So she came into this just very innocent. um, But as time went on, she became more and more um, tainted by the war. And on page 105, it says, In part, it was her eyes, utterly flat and indifferent, There was no emotion in her stare, no sense of the person behind it, which really just shows, since eyes are so important to see who the person is, it just shows how she kind of lost herself in the war, just as many of the soldiers lose their morality during the war.
1: And also, as a physical representation of her loss of morality, um, also on page 105, we have the quote about her necklace of tongues. Um... So, at the girl's throat was a necklace of human tongues, elongated and narrow, like pieces of blackened leather. The tongues were threaded along a length of copper wire, one tongue overlapping the next. The lips curled upward as if caught in a final, shrill syllable. So, this is very much a visible, phys- physical <laughs> representation of Marianne's um, savagery that she... Um, That is part of her personality now in the war. And um, to an extent, the the savagery that the soldiers experience as well. Um, Basically just the killing for the sake of killing. And this is
2: in huge contrast to how um, she was described when she first appeared in Vietnam. Um, On page 86, um, she's described as a cute blonde just a kid, just barely out of high school. She shows up with a suitcase in one of those plastic cosmetic bags. And that image of a sweet, innocent young schoolgirl to a savage, killing monster with a necklace of tongues is really um, emblematic of that sharp change in morality that the Vietnam War caused in the soldiers.
3: Marianne also um, represents how the soldiers can kind of lie to themselves and try and prove that they haven't lost their um, morality on page 106 it says when i'm out there at night i feel close to my own body it doesn't matter because i know exactly who i am you can't feel like that anywhere else and that just really shows how she can say as much as she wants that she's really found herself and that she's doing the right thing when in reality she's more lost than she maybe ever has been
1: regardless of whether or not the sweetheart of the strong, song to wrong story is true. It is just generally a really great symbol of the loss of morality soldiers experienced during the war, obviously to an extent,
3: um, but yeah. Tim O'Brien also has to deal with his own adapting to immorality in war when he was deciding whether or not to go and whether or not to run away. He said, quote, It was a moral split. I couldn't make up my mind. I feared the war, but I also feared exile, from page 42. And he also said that his decision to go to the war, it had nothing to do with morality, embarrassment. That's all it was, from page 57, which really just shows that he wasn't necessarily going to war to fight for a cause because the cause was really hidden from all the soldiers, the reason for the war. It was just that he wanted to save his own face but in a way in trying to preserve his own pride he was doing the moral thing and going and defending his country um, and going and fighting in Vietnam
2: and there's also that contrast between his personal morals because Tim doesn't agree with the war um, and its causes and the sort of moral code of the community where, you know, it's, it's right and it's just to go fight for your country. Um, and Tim, when he chooses to go, in that sort of same moment of reflection, on page 49 he says, I was ashamed of my conscience, ashamed to be doing the right thing. So he feels as though, you know, running away, like choosing not to participate, which he knows in his heart would be the right thing to do. He's ashamed for it. Because it doesn't align with his community's moral code. And that's a, just another way that the war twists what morality means to the soldiers.
1: Alright, so the next point of discussion we have regarding morality is the change in morality um, that the soldiers experienced during the war. And more specifically, the new sense of brotherhood that they have. Um, our first example being the death of Kiowa in the chapter in the field, um, and his effect on, or his death's effect on, um, the other members of, um, of the, what is it called? The squad. Um, but, um, you see his effect in, um, First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross, as well as, um, a few of his own friends, um, because even though his death was really no one's fault, Everyone felt so strongly connected to him that they, in such a huge sense of brotherhood, that losing a member of the brotherhood makes one, like, question their own their own role in that. And so um, Jimmy Cross was blaming himself, um, even the, um, one of Kiowa's friends was blaming himself, like, extensively, just because they felt so tied to them.
2: And um, you see that in Tim writing the story about Norman blaming himself and then Tim later blaming himself in a different chapter. Everyone kind of takes their own share of that blame. Um. Yeah so um, this is also like
1: you wouldn't really experience this in normal society I guess outside of war just because everyone is sort of in it for themselves but because when you're in war there's such a strong sense of communal suffering um the loss of one member has such a deeper impact on everyone else um because they're all going through the same thing and you're all looking out for each other
3: as well as yourselves something that o'brien um explores is the difference between the loss of morality for necessity and the loss of morality for retaliation in the man i killed chapter when O'Brien was um, about to kill the man, um, he said, I did not see him as the enemy. I did not ponder issues of morality or politics or military duty. Um, That's on page 126. And he killed the man out of necessity because the man could potentially be an enemy and could potentially kill him. So it was out of self-defense and necessity.
1: Um, We also see the change of morality and the idea of brotherhood Um, at the very end of the book when Tim is seeking vengeance on Bobby for um, not helping him when he was shot. Um, And um, this kind of retaliation is kind of worse because um, it was a violation of brotherhood. So um, as a result, Tim felt even more, he felt that betrayal and that kind of created deeper resentment than say like um the enemy um like the vietnamese um retaliating against um, tim and his fellow soldiers this sort of violation of brotherhood struck a deeper nerve and um there's a quote about how tim was feeling when he was um, seeking vengeance um, that there was this that coldness inside me i wasn't myself i felt hollow and dangerous Um, so this is just showing how he was losing his morality because he normally wouldn't do something like this, but because of, um, the circumstances, um, this is how he was feeling. And that was on page 197. Um, so as stated before, there is a, um, really, really big emphasis on being selfless in war and looking out for other people due to the communal suffering. Everyone is like, everyone is more or less in the same situation, um, trying to fight for their life, but um, they kind of result, resort to helping others as well because it just it creates a bigger better sense of trust um, and you kind of need to be united in order to um, fight an enemy. But as soon as the soldiers leave war and they go back to regular life, they find it really, really hard to adapt and that 's mainly because there's less of a sense of unity and brotherhood. Um, in normal society, people are kind of in it for themselves, and you can really never trust anyone to the full extent that you could in war. Um, so we have a quote from, um, the book, that states, "But once you leave the boonies, the whole comrade business gets turned around. You become a sil- civil civilian. <laughs> you forfeit membership in the family." Um, so in this sense, violence has a way of uniting people, kind of drawing them together for um, survival of the whole group. Um, And as soon as you leave war, that's kind of not there anymore. Um, So that's a big sense of of how important brotherhood is in war.
3: Chapter 2, The Truth of Storytelling. In this chapter, we will be discussing how storytelling provides a vessel to convey the shifting emotional truth of a war. To introduce this section, here are some
1: words from Tim O'Brien in an interview with NPR where he talks about his motives for storytelling.
3: The goal, I suppose, that any fiction writer has, no matter what your subject, is to hit the human heart and tear ducks in the nape of the neck and to make a person feel something of what the characters are going through and to experience the moral paradoxes and struggles of being human. And in a way, I, for me, although on the surface, of course, it is a book about war. It's. I've never thought of it really that way in my heart. Even when I was writing it, it seemed to be a book about storytelling and the uh, the burdens we all accumulate through our lives. Our moms and dads and backyards, teachers. The, which we, I mean, I, my dad died. I don't know four years ago. And he is as gone as anybody I knew in Vietnam.
2: So, while we were researching this section and writing about it, we noticed that this theme, story truth versus happening truth, recurs over and over again in the text. And while we were writing about it, it seemed um, to us that O'Brien was sort of asking this question and answering it in a way. Does factual truth matter more than emotional truth? And so, before we dive a bit deeper into it, we took the question out um, around the school and asked some of our classmates their opinions.
0: well define emotional truth do you mean like how you're like what do you mean by your feelings
2: in the moment does it matter more than what actually
0: happened well this is actually can i talk about mock trial yeah go ahead so actually there's this hearsay rule there's this can i yeah yeah okay there's this exception to the rule of hearsay where in court you can bring up um, an exception basically you can argue that statements that wouldn't otherwise be admissible into evidence are not being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, rather their effect on the listener. Meaning you're not talking about the truth as in what happened. You're talking about the truth as in how it affected, how it made them feel. Exactly. So I feel like the way that the truth makes you feel is much more important than real factual truth because... I mean, depending on the situation, obviously, I mean, there are, like, actual problems in our world because of, like, fake news and real truth, but, I mean, let's be honest, the way our truths affect one another is how we need to interpret it.
2: So, Ava, in your opinion, does factual truth matter more than emotional truth? Like, the raw details of the event, does it matter more than how it made you feel?
1: I mean I think it's equal. Equal it's
2: like equal. Yeah. 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 You, why do you think that? Because like things can affect people and maybe it'll mess something up. So Erica, in your opinion, does factual truth matter more than emotional truth? Uh
1: I think for my cousin. Um <laughs> I guess factual truth. I mean, because then everyone can kind of interpret it in their own manner. And then, like, once you have the facts, then it's easier to talk about the emotions.
2: So one of the ideas that we'd like to discuss in this section is the sort of concept that O'Brien puts forth um, of story truth versus happening truth. And so that kind of calls into question, the difference, and which one matters more, story truth versus happening truth. Um, And O'Brien reflects directly on this in um, the chapter Good Form, where he kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit and addresses the reader directly. And he says on page 171, I want you to feel what I felt. I want you to know why story truth is truer sometimes than happening truth. And that kind of addresses why the book is written as it is. It's a bit of a meta-reflection that O'Brien fictionalizes the accounts of his friends, his um, fellow soldiers, in order to convey the deeper weight of the emotions that they felt at that time. So we have several different accounts of Kiowa's death, of several different accounts of how the man um, O'Brien killed or didn't kill in reality. And using the man I killed as an example, O'Brien reflects that um, he can say honestly in response to his daughter, did you kill anybody? And I can say honestly, of course not. Or I can say honestly, yes, on page 172. And that sort of shows how the story truth and the happening truth, even though... O'Brien did not literally kill the boy. He uses the story truth, he uses the truth of the story to deal with the guilt that he feels and the emotion that he feels complicit in killing this boy through his participation in the war, through his position in the war. And that both, in reality, hold the same weight for him and that neither should be valued above the other. And that is sort of how O'Brien poses this question. Does factual truth matter more than emotional truth? And in this way, he sort of answers it, that both of them carry the same weight, and that in some cases, story truth, or the truth of the emotions
3: um, that we have, is almost more valuable. Another place which um, O'Brien explores story truth versus happening truth is through Rat and how Rat was notorious for telling stories that you could only really believe a fraction of. And he wasn't doing it out of deceit or trying to lie, but he felt that by changing the story, he could more accurately get across the thoughts and feelings that he felt. And on page 85, it said, It wasn't a question of deceit, just the opposite. He wanted to heat up the truth, to make it burn so hot that you would feel exactly what he felt. For Rat Kylie, I think, facts were formed by sensation, not the other way around. And when you listen to one of his stories, you'd find yourself performing rapid calculations in your head, subtracting superlatives, finding the square root of an absolute, and then multiplying by maybe. And so this just shows how even though you couldn't really believe everything that Rat said, just like the sweetheart of the song Jabong story, that it was more important, the ideas that Rat was trying to get across, than the actual story.
1: So another point of discussion um, surrounding O'Brien's method of storytelling is his use of multi-perspectives and switching switching perspectives throughout the story. Um, There is a lot of ambiguity in his storytelling because he switches perspectives a lot and tells the story through many different lenses, um, basically, showing that there is some universal truth for every soldier and what they feel during and after the war. I guess that would be his motive for doing so. Um, and for example, there is a big switch between the chapters. Speaking of courage and the chapter notes. Um, and speaking of sh- courage, it's told from the perspective of Norman ba- um Norman Boker, um, whereas notes is from the perspective of Tim O'Brien. And um, basically this contrast is sort of illustrating how all soldiers can relate to the inner conflicts of Norman Boker, who couldn't seem to shake the horrific memories of the war, so much so that it drove him to take his own life. Um, But the inclusion of this perspective in the story emphasizes the impact of war on a person, because it shows that there was a broader range of people who were afflicted with the trauma of war beyond just Tim O'Brien. So, Um, I believe that is his motive for including uh, many perspectives, though it might seem a little bit scattered. Um, It does provide a much greater um, purpose.
2: And um, in the chapter, How to Tell a True War Story, O'Brien elaborates a lot on the nature of how he tells this story in particular. And one very interesting element of that is the chronology of the story, because A lot of the things they carried is out of order, and within the chapters themselves, the stories kind of circle back and loop upon each other. And um, he reflects on that on page 68, saying, When a guy dies, like Kurt Lemon, you look away and then look back for a moment, then look away again. The pictures get jumbled. You tend to miss a lot. And then afterward, when you go to tell about it, there is always that surreal seemingness, which makes the story seem untrue, but which in fact represents the hard and exact truth as it seemed. And so in this way, we can see that O'Brien uses this method of storytelling of sort of mixing up the bones of the story, the elements, and sort of throwing it all in the blender to express how the soldiers recollect their time in the war, how they really feel about it. It's a vehicle for an, just another way to convey the story truth and the happening truth all at once to get across the bones and the actual feeling of the experience that the soldiers had.
3: So O'Brien also uses storytelling as a coping mechanism to get past um, trying to deal with deaths. And one story that he told was um, with Linda, the girl who he felt that he was in love with even as a young child. And she died of cancer, which was a very traumatic experience for O'Brien. And he said that on page 223 he said as a writer now I want to save Linda's life not her body her life and on 224 he says in a story I can steal her soul and he he can kind of bring her back to life through his stories and through his imagination and in remembering her and imagining what she would be like as she grows up he's able to keep her alive and he's able to deal with the pain of losing someone who he felt so close to. And on 225 he said that in Vietnam too, we had ways of making the dead seem not so dead. Um and um and so
1: Linda's story in this sense is kind of shares the same sentiment um as um the way he would bring people back in Vietnam. Um for example, in The Man I Killed he kind of theorizes the life of the man he kills sort of in an attempt to bring his spirit back to life because he feels so guilty for killing him um so he'll kind of think about oh what what did he want to study what was his like family life like what were his goals it was just he couldn't he knew he couldn't save him um but he thought through writing he could kind of bring him back or kind of do justice for him um which is something he couldn't do um, in other ways. And also um, in some of the um, veteran videos, um, we found out that um, writing as a coping me- mechanism was often a really, really impactful thing on the soldiers. And like those who didn't write kind of bottled everything up and it it sort of ate them alive. Whereas um, Tim O'Brien, he's... He's still going strong today, um, and that can't be said for other soldiers um, or other 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 veterans. Um, and I think that's largely due to um, his use of storytelling as a coping mechanism.
3: And this also kind of circles back to the idea that a story doesn't have to be true for it to be meaningful, because he makes up these stories about Linda and about the man he killed, about what their life would have been like, had they not died. And while these stories are obviously just his imagination and they couldn't be true, it doesn't matter that they're not true because he's able to deal with his emotions and uncover the truth about how he feels and the truth of the situation, even though what he's imagining and dreaming up wouldn't be true.
2: So cycling back a little bit, um, the chapter, The Man I Killed, is an amazing example of the power of storytelling as a coping mechanism. Um, later in the book, Tim reflects what stories can do, I guess, is make things present. I can look at things I never looked at. I can attach faces to grief and love and pity and God. I can be brave. I can make myself feel again. And that is exactly what he does in the chapter, The Man I Killed. And it is Tim imagining the life of this man. And the chapter uses a lot of repetition a lot of repeated imagery of the star-shaped hole and the shattered jaw to kind of get across the shell-shocked nature of what Tim was feeling, the pure shock that he was experiencing. And um, Tim imagines this whole life for the dead boy that he was afraid of war, he was afraid of violence, he loved math, he had a girlfriend. Um, He writes on page 122, his life was now a constellation of possibilities. And in that, there is a bit of irony because he was dead. He couldn't have any more possibilities. It was over for him. But Tim, seeing him there, could now reflect, he could sort of humanize him. He could bring him to life as a person, not as an enemy, rather than um, kind of counteracting the perspective that he had been forced to take in order to survive, to see the enemy as not, on the same level as him. Um, and Tim reflects later in the book that he didn't actually kill the man. Um, on page 169, he says, for instance, I want to tell you this. 20 years ago, I watched a man die on a trail near the village of my Key. I did not kill him, but I was present, you see, and my presence was guilt enough. So Tim, even though he didn't kill the man, he writes this story as if he had in order to process the guilt that he feels, the, to kind of unload the complicit nature of what he was doing to really get through the pain and the, I don't know, the way that the events must have been haunting him. Um, and storytelling in that way became a way to process what he felt. O'Brien's
1: exploration of truth and morality through his storytelling in The Things They Carried allows the reader
2: to empathize with a topic they might know very little about. Using these themes of morality, truth, and storytelling, O'Brien is able to investigate the effects of war on veterans and his own personal trauma that he experienced in Vietnam and still struggles with today.
3: In the beginning of the novel, O'Brien spends a lot of time discussing the things the soldiers carried, both the physical and the abstract.
1: They carried all the emotional baggage of men who might die. Grief, terror, love, longing. These were intangibles, but the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had tangible weight. Page 20.
2: After they finally returned from the war, the soldiers found themselves carrying the weight of moral injury with no way to put it down.
3: I had a lot of, I don't call
2: them nightmares, but just things that imprinted in were in my head. I couldn't get them out. I wrote down everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sublime, the ridiculous, the stupid, the smart. And then I put it away, but it was a transference. I took all the shit in here and put it out here. It works, it helps. If we can survive 40 some years in the wilderness, you can do it. You can look at us and say, Jesus, if those guys can do it, it's a piece of cake. All right.
3: (laughs) As the wars fought move further away from black and white and into the unnavigable gray area in between, as we are forced to reconcile the actions taken in that murky expanse, humanity is left wanting a compass, a way out. Storytelling offers that direction. The catharsis our world so sorely needs— a way to heal the injuries of immorality sustained in war, and a way back to one's own truth. This has been Gray Areas with Rosie Safford, Megan Amaro, and Miranda Boyd. Thank Thank you for listening.